I'm Jeff Eichler. And I'm Kirsten Rickert. And we are the hosts of the Getting Unstuck podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Mauro Guillen from the Wharton School of Business. He's an expert on global market trends, and he's also the author of the book 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. What an incredible talk. He was amazing. So much to learn. You're going to love this one. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Mauro F. Guillen is one of the most original thinkers at the Wharton School, where he holds the Zandman Professorship in International Management and teaches in its flagship advanced management program and many other courses for executives, MBAs, and undergraduates. As an expert on global market trends, he is a sought-after speaker and consultant. He combines his training as a sociologist at Yale and as a business economist in his native Spain to methodically identify and quantify the most promising opportunities at the intersection of demographic, economic, and technological developments. His online classes on Coursera and edX have attracted over 100,000 participants from around the world. He has won multiple teaching awards at Wharton, where his presentation on global market trends has become a permanent feature of over 50 executive education programs annually. His research, teaching, and speaking incorporates both numerical assessments of trends and illuminating examples from business, politics, and everyday life. He shows in accessible terms that one can accurately forecast trends by uh, systematically following the babies and following the money into the future. He's the author of the book 2030 AD, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. It's just published. Mauro, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Well, I'm glad to have you join us, and I'm enjoying, I've enjoyed your book, 2030, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about it. And, uh, but, but before we delve into your book, 2030 AD, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, let's talk about something that I read in your bio. You're an expert in global market trends. What inspired you to take that direction? Well, this was about seven years ago or so. It dawned on me that people were confused about what the future might bring. Uh, so if you remember, we were like three or four years out of the previous crisis. And, uh, you know, it wasn't clear where the U.S. or, for that matter, the rest of the world was headed. And I was making a lot of presentations, uh, including, by the way, high school students, uh, but also, you know, for my undergraduates at Penn and MBAs and executives and so on and so forth. And I detected that they were uh, very anxious about what the future might bring. And that's when I decided to start doing research for the book. I I started writing the book about two years ago or three years ago. And as you said, it just came out last week. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the book. And I appreciate you sharing that because it's, it's, it's cool because that, that takes a little bit of an undertaking, I would think, to, to be focused on everything to bring the world together type thing. Just talk about these trends. So good stuff. Uh, so let's shift to your book. It's called 2030 AD, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. At the beginning of the introduction, you have there's this title and it says the clock is ticking and there's a quotation and it says people generally see what they look for and hear what they listen for. And 
this is from the book uh, um, To Kill a Mockingbird. So what message are you sending to the reader by using that quotation? Well, I think the quotation speaks to our tendency as human beings. We all have our biases, but our tendency to essentially, when we're faced by uncertainty, we, we don't know what's going to happen, to look for the familiar and to perhaps be more likely to see, right, to detect something that resonates with some experience that we've had or perhaps something that is consistent with our training. Uh, we were all, you know, in school and maybe we liked history better than math or vice versa. So each of us has a different perspective on things also because of uh, that education and that training that we've received. And needless to say, an economist, an engineer, a uh, high school dropout, uh, or somebody who uh, went into one of the health sciences will have a different perspective on things. And I think that quote from Mockingbird captures that. And it's extremely important to overcome those biases because you see, there's only one reality in the end, right? But each of us constructs that reality in a different way. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And you're right. I mean, that's, it's everything that's, if I think it's right, it's right in my mind, right? <laughs> Correct. And the problem, of course, is that if you start making decisions based on that reality that you've constructed for yourself, maybe you'll be on a solid foundation, but maybe you won't be. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, I, yes, I understand. <laughs> um, you know, early in chapter one, which is titled Follow the Babies, you note women now enjoy more opportunities outside the household to seize those opportunities. They remain in school and in many cases pursue higher education. This in turn means that they postpone childbearing. The change in women's roles in the economy and in society more generally is the single most important factor behind the decline in fertility worldwide. Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, so we're having fewer and fewer babies as time goes by. And this is happening in the US, in Europe, in Japan, in China, even in the poorest countries. And it's happening as women stay in school and they pursue a job and more importantly, a career, right? It all has to do with women, really. It's the single most important factor. When women have other things to do, automatically what we see is that then the number of babies drops. And I'm not saying that's bad. All I'm saying is that there's a very, very strong correlation there. And it makes sense, uh, you know, at a very, very uh, high level of abstraction in the sense that, well, if you want to pursue other dreams, then you postpone having your babies. Um, but if you postpone having your first baby, then you're not going to have 19 babies like my great-great-grandmother. Maybe you'll have one or you'll have two. So that is the basic reason why we're seeing fewer and fewer babies being born in the world. And it's pretty wild. I mean, just like you just said about your grandmother, I and mean, you talk about that in your, in your book, the, uh, I, I have relatives on, in both sides of my family that, uh, you know, you go back into the, in, into when they were children, there were multiple siblings because their family, their parents were having lots of kids and, uh, and uh, you know, come forward in my own family line and I, I have two. Yeah, you know, no, absolutely. And, you know, when we were growing up, I'm sure you remember that the older siblings would take care of the younger siblings, right? That sort of thing so. can no longer happen because there's only one, you know, uh, son or daughter, or there's only two siblings, right? That's about it. Right. Uh, so, yes, all of the, most of those things are a thing of the past. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. All I'm saying is that it has consequences. And certainly we can talk about uh, those because they are, I think, uh, uh, things that are going to change uh, the rest of our lives. What, what do you think is one of them? I mean, what's, what's one of these impacts of having the, 
the, the fewer babies? Well, uh, one very important consequence is that very soon, uh, by the year 2030, we're going to have more grandparents and grandchildren. And as you know, grandparents typically are in retirement. So a big question comes up, which is, who's going to pay for those pensions? Because as you know, we need uh, people to be working and paying payroll taxes, which support Social Security, in order to pay pensions. And uh, a few months ago, the Social Security Administration trustees published a report saying that uh, by the year 2029, uh, the so-called uh, financial solvency ratio of Social Security will fall below 100%, which means that there's no guarantee that we will be able to pay all of those pensions. And by the way, the pandemic only accelerates that trend because, as you know, we're having fewer babies also as a result of the pandemic, and therefore population aging will kick in earlier. Uh, so that's one consequence, right? Everybody worries about that. And uh, we're not alone. The U.S. is not the only country confronting this problem in the world. There's many others in Europe, in Asia, and elsewhere. Uh, but it is something that, like, once again, has to do with the fact that we used to have big families 40 or 50 years ago. Now, those children are going to retirement, right? right. But we have fewer children um, of those children, right, who have uh, now jobs and are paying taxes. That's, it's fascinating because it's, you know, when you, you don't really think about this as, as you're working in the world, you have your family, you're developing, you know, you, you're doing what you're doing and, and the impact that you could be having. Um, and especially if it's not just in your family, but it's across the world, uh, that impact. It's across the world. Let me tell you, when I was growing up, I had this image of India as being a country in which families on average had six, seven, eight children. And that was actually the case, right? If you go back to the numbers, the statistics in the 1960s, today, the number is 2.3. Wow. Just 2.3, which is barely above replacement, right? So per woman, right, this is always calculated per woman, you need at least two to replace the population, right? Uh, so India, which used to be a country with very big families, now is just above the replacement level. It's... Um, uh, for me, right, somebody born in the 1960s is just something that I, I never thought I would see in my lifetime. I understand. I, I do. That is something that, because I'm like you there. I always thought that, uh, you know, because you always have that impression of very large families in India. And uh, mm -hmm. that's interesting to know that that's, that's changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, chapter two of your book is titled, which we just started getting into, is titled Gray is the New Black. And, and you say, besides healthcare, retail, and robotics among the fastest changing parts of the global economy, in the wake of population, aging will be finance. Uh, and simply put, people's money-related needs, preferences, and attitudes change as they age. Um, can you talk about, let's talk about that just a little bit, because they, they do, as they get older, you know, there's things become different more important to us from different areas and, and not, not even talking about possibility of death, you know, looming out there, but just other things that we think about change. Can you talk? Yeah. So fundamentally two things have changed, right? Before we get into the implications, for example, for, for the world of finance. So one thing is that as we were commenting earlier, we have more people above the age of 60, right? Population <laughs> aging. Those are big, uh, age cohorts, those are big numbers of people who were born during the baby boom here in the United States, the baby boomers are now, you know, going into uh, retirement, number one. And number two, really importantly, a 70-year-old today is not the same as a 70-year-old 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Now we stay in much better physical and psychological shape, 
right? Um, and we live longer and longer and longer. This is great news for people like you and I, right? Right. Uh, but what are the implications? Well, the implications is that uh, once people um, turn 60, and in the United States, we have 12,000 people celebrating their 60th birthday every day. Oh my okay. gosh. So today, about 12,000 people will celebrate their 60th birthday in the United States. Those people now can look forward to living on average 20, 25 years. Okay. And that's another lifetime or half a lifetime. So they need their savings to last. Uh, or perhaps they can think, I don't want to be bored because maybe retirement is oversold. So I want to work part-time. Maybe I can go to the gig economy, one of those websites and you know, do something and earn some money. Right? Or I can use my car and uh, go on Uber or Lyft. Uh, a lot of people are doing that right? because they feel yes. lonely at home. And maybe they need a little bit extra money because they would like to buy a present uh, for their grandchildren. So the point here is that people's needs change. And when it comes to financial services, of course, they change dramatically because you start using your savings, spending the money that you have set aside, as opposed to you know, accumulating more and more savings so that one day you can retire at least in part. That's an interesting thought there. Because it, it's funny, I, I, having used Uber a couple of times over the last couple of years and uh, depending on where I was, depended on the age. Um, I was flew in, in and out of Chicago a couple of times at O'Hare and uh, they were much younger. I was, you know, the young guys um, just scooting in and out with those, those vehicles. But yeah. now uh, I, I've taken Uber not too long ago in Florida in an area that's a Little, uh, um, little higher in age bracket that's uh, hanging out in this this area in Florida. A little more of a retirement community, and each time the Uber driver was somebody um, mid sixties and above, and uh, uh, which was quite interesting because they had a whole different their whole topics that they talked about were completely different than the young guys in Chicago. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but there's uh, quite a few people in that demographic uh, who are Uber drivers or who are renting space, um, you know, in their homes, uh, you know, on Airbnb, at least before the pandemic. Uh, so you'd be surprised. I mean, you cannot really generalize on the basis of a sample of two trips uh, <laughs> that you've taken on Uber. Oh, come on. Uh, but um, the, the, again, the point is that things are changing and, you know, what I think is really important to realize is that the definition of old and young is very different today and into the future than what it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I think we need to adjust to that. Um, you see, when, when, when people invented in Europe, uh, it was in Germany, 140 years ago, uh, pensions, old age pensions, which you know, didn't uh, exist before the 1880s. Um, they promised uh, that you would have a pension paid for by the government when you turn 65. But you know, average life expectancy back then was 35 or wow. 36. <laughs> so those politicians in Germany, they were very smart. Very smart. <laughs> they were making promises that they knew they could keep. But you see, we've kept the retirement age at the same level, but people are living longer. And not only that, people are living longer and they are in better shape. Um, and therefore, I think we need to reconsider what it means to be old and what it means to be young. That's, it's so... I mean, thought provoking because it, you really do. And I mean, I'm not quite sure how I got to the age that I am now. <laughs> so, somehow, miraculously, I've appeared here at this age. And uh, because there's always those people that are older in my family mm -hmm. and uh, not anymore. Um, so you're right. I like, we, we do have to rethink that. It's, it's interesting. It's just become more to, <laughs> to my um, 
readiness to accept it now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you see, I mean, one of the things that um, I need, we need to reconsider is this idea that life progresses in stages. Uh, and it's a 19th century idea. It's not even a 20th century idea. That is to say that in your first uh, few years, you learn, you attend school and you learn, and then you start working. So you make your own money. And then at some point you retire. And I think uh, the boundaries between those different stages are becoming very blurred. For instance, learning. Um, so I think uh, given what's going on in the world, given that we live longer, given that there's so much technological change, we're gonna have to go back to school several times. It's not enough to go uh, to school when you're in your uh, early years. Um, perhaps uh, after age 40, we should all go back to school to retool ourselves, to refresh our understanding of what's going on. Uh, I think that's a fundamentally different way of thinking about life. And that's, I think, what's going on. What's going on is that we're coming out of this, um, you know, era in which um, it was very clear what we needed to do. If you're 20, right, or up until age uh, 20, you're supposed to study. After that, you're supposed to make money. And then after age 60 or 65, you're supposed to use your savings. I think all of those assumptions, I think uh, we need to revisit, to reconsider. It's wild. And I, I could see that. I see exactly what you're talking about because the need to revisit, to figure out how to do something different. I mean, you know, and uh, to, to prolong your savings and so forth um, makes perfect sense. Or if nothing else, to at least have something to do because you're living and being able to do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Before the robots take over. <laughs> yes. yes. And, uh, and, and before my, uh, um, I, I would definitely need something to do because if, if my wife and I are still going at the same rate, at some point she would, I would drive her nuts. So it's like, you go back to school. All right, do, do, do something. <laughs> hey, um, you know, could you share with us a little about changing trends in the middle class of the U.S. and Europe versus other parts of the world? Because that, that's, that's an interesting section in your book. Yeah, so that's another, um, I think, uh, legacy from another era that we need to reconsider, which is that the world essentially has one middle class, and that's the middle class from Europe, the United States, maybe we could add Japan. Uh, and that middle class essentially is the backbone of everything, uh, from politics to the economy to culture. Um, and it's a you know, middle class that is right now in its uh, fourth generation or fifth generation here in the United States or in Europe. But now we're no longer alone in the universe. Now there's a first generation middle class that is becoming bigger than ours, both uh, numerically and in terms of spending power in the emerging markets. And at the top of those emerging markets, we have China followed by India and so on. And this is going to change everything because uh, we, again, grew up in the world in which our membership in the middle class here in the United States, for instance, defined us. And we were the biggest middle class in the world, the wealthiest middle class in the world. And we knew that every generation of that middle class would do better than the preceding one. And most of those things, unfortunately, are now under threat. That's the problem. Interesting. It's and it it is a it's a fascinating read because it makes you think about a lot of a lot of aspects of uh, because you're right that you know I grew up with the the thought that you these are those stages that you talked about before and this is what's going to happen and and you try and do better than your parents before you did and uh, um, and your grandparents and try to make that uh, that home workout and that home life and that career and and hopefully be able to retire and uh, and now we're <laughs> talking about yeah. uh, figuring out how to re-retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and not only that, by the way, also your parents were expecting you to do better than them. They really wanted the best for you. 
not only that, they were also expecting you to leave the home and set up, you know, like uh, rent or own your own home and start a family. And that chain of uh, events there has been broken, as you know, with uh, the millennial generation, um, because they've been going through two crises already. This is the second crisis for them during their adult life, uh, lives. And they're finding it very difficult to settle down, uh, to have a uh, stable job, and to be able to set up their own separate household. Wild. It's a, it, it, and so it, it has to impact how they think about what that future's like, I would think. Oh, I believe so. And I think uh, we have to be careful here because they may get completely disappointed and frustrated at what's going on. Uh, so we, I think we need to, you know, stop criticizing millennials so much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I think it has become for our generation <laughs> a, uh, almost like a sport. <laughs> and uh, start thinking about what are the constraints and the limitations that they're encountering that we didn't, right? That we were lucky enough not to have to face. And I think they're having a lot of trouble overcoming, especially, you know, the, the occurrence of two consecutive crises within a decade or so. That's it. it yeah, the impact that it has. I mean, we'll see. And I do have to say, by the way, it, you're right. It, it has become almost a sport to uh, to the point that you know, it, if if they're constantly the subject of comedians' lines and uh, and you know, book titles and books, <laughs> not just chapters but entire books <laughs> about what's wrong with this generation, you know. And, but it does sound a little like a repeat of past <laughs> generations in somewhat. But, uh, but a little bit more to the extent that it's like, wow, really? I don't, I don't know if there's a blame for everything. <laughs> yeah, but you, you do have to go back 100 years to the Great Depression to see a situation in which, uh, once again, there was a generation that really had to deal with enormous challenges. Right. It's pretty wild. Uh, you know, and let's shift into a different chapter. I, by the way, I love your titles of your chapters, okay? Thank they're, you. They're very, they're, they're awesome titles and they're, and they, they kind of give you a like, okay, what is this one going to be about? So chapter six is definitely one of those titles. More cell phones than toilets. And um, this is shared. Each technological wave of disruption is accompanied by the illusion that technology can liberate us from our problems, small and large. In fact, it is a force that tends to both create problems and generate solutions. Could you tell us more? Yes. Yeah, so first about the title itself. Uh, so this is uh, already true. We don't have to wait until the year 2030, which is that there's uh, about a billion more people in the world who have um, a cell phone, a mobile phone, in some cases a smartphone, uh, when compared to the number of people that have a toilet in their home. Um, because there's no sewer, there's no sewage connection, right, in many parts of the developing world. But those people still have a phone. And I think this tells us a lot about our priorities these days, right? So both, uh, you know, in developing countries and in rich countries like ours, people value their connectivity much more than many other things. Uh, it's impossible to do without a phone these days because the phone is not just a phone. It's so much more yes. than that, right? And so technology, I think, uh, in particular, the mobile phone has certainly, you know, uh, helped us become more productive, more connected, more creative, all sorts of things, um, better entertained perhaps. But it has also interfered with so many other things and has created problems. I mean, we have learning problems among children as a result of this. Um, we have uh, issues with uh, the fact that not everybody has a phone, right, to begin with, so there is inequality that gets generated. And by the way, going back to the following the babies thing, uh, theme in the first chapter, 
technology is distracting us from having kids. There's very good research indicating that the more people spend time with their electronic gadgets, the less they think about having sex, and therefore, the fewer children we have. I, to, I gotta interrupt you because that's terrible. <laughs> They're more entertained by the phone. Well, well uh, look, what's yeah, wrong? yeah. What's wrong? By, by the way, all of that started with radio and television. Going back to it's, India, you see the government in the 50s in India, they wanted to reduce the number of children because they thought it was unsustainable. And so what they did was they, um, uh, they sent uh, radios uh, to um, many uh, poor families, hoping that they would listen more to the radio uh, and not have so many children. Nice. So there's a long history to the use of technology, especially entertainment communications technology, as a way to bring fertility down. But today, I would argue, perhaps we've gone too far with that, right? <laughs> when you, I mean, you can watch. I mean, I, I've been at restaurants where you're sitting in a restaurant and, and you know, <laughs> in, where the whole family's looking at their phone. I mean, it's well, absolutely. like... Absolutely. And not, not to, talking. Right, not talking, and they're not, they're not sharing the same thing. They're, they're all looking at their phones for different reasons, and it's like, wow, yeah. okay. No, yeah. look, it has completely taken over our lives, and we haven't even talked about dating. Oh, the whole dating game has you know, been transformed by yes. phones and by certain apps. Now the pandemic has you know, established certain limits, but still people are having phone dates during this pandemic, right? That's, that's right. Uh, so it has changed everything. There's no question about it. And connectivity is what's, I think, going to define the world of the future. I totally see that. I mean, it's like, you know, one of the things with the phones, because you talk about, I mean, the, first of all, it's, it's amazing the power that's in that phone compared to, you know, when, I mean, you know, 1971, I'm getting up on Saturday mornings to watch the, uh, the Pink Panther uh, cartoons and, uh, um, the monkeys and stuff like that, the, the, the music group on TV type thing and, and all those good cartoons that were at the time. And, um, you know, people complained about how much TV I was watching. <laughs> no, turn it off. You need to go outside. Yeah. You need to go outside. Turn it off. Got to go outside. Oh, come on, mom. I just want to just a little bit more of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah Bugs yeah. Bunny, Roadrunner, you know, we're good. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, well, what this creates is uh, the on-demand economy, right? And the on-demand life, meaning that with your phone, you can access whatever you want um, at any moment. So I call this the on-demand culture, right? And uh, remember, we're raising our kids right. to expect uh, that you can have, you know, uh, I'm not going to say everything you would like, but um, a lot are basically on demand um, just by, you know, swiping left or right or by you know, navigating the web in a particular way. So it does change, I think, uh, social relationships. It changes uh, expectations about life. It changes the economy, no doubt about that. It sure does. The, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because you talk about just on demand itself. I, you know, I, I have become addicted to binging shows. You know, it's like, but, you know, if we just back up just a few years, you had to wait till the following week to find out what happened? You know, it's like... Um, well, you, you have to wait to get the news. That too, yes. Uh, until the evening news, uh, you know, for prime time on TV or until the paper would arrive at your doorstep. But now, you know, you want to know what's going on in the world, just, you know, take your phone. It's pretty wild. I know it's like, uh, one of my favorite things that uh, someone brought up recently that I love is that, uh, you know, when I was in school and they introduced the calculator, I can remember teachers saying, you know, 
you're never going to be uh, have a calculator wherever you go. So you've got to learn how to do this without the calculator. Well, <laughs> I've got a calculator wherever I go, go now. And not only that, I've got an entire catalog of whatever I want to find out to find out the answers. And I just, and just a side note, I have to mention this because I'm addicted to music. And, uh, you know, in the, in the 70s, late 70s and 80s, I had to take, we'd take my stepbrother's mega speakers and stick them in the windows and we crank up the stereo and then go outside and work in the yard. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me give you another comparison. When I was growing up as a teenager, it would cost me about the equivalent of $18 in today's money to purchase one song. Wow. Uh, because that would be the price of a single, the single record would have two songs. So I'm dividing it by two and it's $18. But today with a streaming service, you can listen to as many songs as you'd like, as long as you pay a monthly subscription fee which can be as low as $9.99, right, dollars. Yes. As many songs. So the world has changed, let's, uh, let's face it, right? And, and technology has played a very big role and will continue to play a very big role in that transformation. Very much so. I, I do have to say, though, I wish, you know, one of the things that's awesome is that with a couple of Bluetooth speakers, my phone, I can, I can make more sound <laughs> than I could with those giant speakers in that window. Mm -hmm. so, absolutely but, yeah just said it's you know running back and forth to change the eight-track tape though it wasn't the, <laughs> not the same thing so all right I, I get off the subject of music well, um you know let's talk about the good and the bad possibilities associated with ai because you get into this a little bit about ai and that's that in itself um is, is intriguing to me because i got my own little frustrations with what it's called ai right now so mm -hmm. talk mm -hmm. about the good and the bad coming with that well, I think the good is that uh, with AI, for example, we can find better treatments for rare diseases, uh, or we can um, use robotics perhaps to take care of people who need 24-7 uh, care in their home, uh, whereas maybe for them it would be very expensive to hire a human being uh, to assist them. So I think those are the, the, the incredible opportunities and the new horizons that AI, artificial intelligence that is, uh, brings to the table. But AI can also uh, replace us, you and I, perhaps, right? Uh, yeah. So perhaps this interview could be conducted, you know, by um, uh, an AI, uh, you know, uh, based uh, robot on your part. And then I would be another robot who happened to write a book. And um, I'm pretty sure we could communicate perfectly. But we have having, you know, without thinking about uh, the possibility that every job will be replaced by robots. I think the problem with AI fundamentally is that uh, I think, um, you know, could make us uh, be lazier, right? And not, uh, you know, think as much about certain things. So going back to the calculator, I think the problem with the calculator, so as an educator, I resonate with that comment that you made. It resonates with me. Because to the extent that you use a calculator for adding, let's say, uh, the tax, right? The sales tax, when you go to the restaurant or whatever, calculating the tip, right? Yes. I think you are foregoing an opportunity to exercise your mind, right? And to make more connections inside of your brain. So I do believe that um, AI could have negative consequences, not only in terms of destroying jobs, which is a serious threat, but also making human beings lazy. And remember, we are so smart because of millions and millions of evolution, right? That's right. what they taught me at school, right? right. I'm right. not a biologist, but that's what they taught me at school. <laughs> and um, I mean, if we stop pushing ourselves, right, in terms of thinking, uh, trying to understand the logic of things and all of that, because we increasingly rely on computers 
I think uh, even if the computers don't become as smart as we are right now, I think we will, you know, become lazy and less um, inquisitive. Let me put it that way. Oh, I can see that happening. I, I, now I got to say something real quick. When you start talking about the tip and all that stuff, there are people who know me that listen to my podcast that are, that are laughing right now because of who you're talking to. You're talking to a guy who goes, oh, can you help me with your tip, the, the, figuring out this tip? And they'll go, <laughs> Steve, I told you about this before, all right? You just do like this. You figured it this way, and that's your tip. And they're like, yeah, okay, but <laughs> help me again. Put away the calculator. You're embarrassing me. <laughs> uh, it's a universal experience, I think. <laughs> nice, uh, nice. And increasingly, people are using the calculator in their phones to come up with the appropriate tip. And there's an app, by the way, that calculates the tip for you. Right? Yes, which, which my sons have introduced me to because they got tired of figuring it out for me. So, <laughs> but the, uh, they're very nice. So, you know, it is, it is interesting because some of the AI stuff that, uh, you know, that, that it's a possibility out there is, is pretty wild because, uh, um, you know, there's everything from, uh, you talk a little bit about uh, changing the way uh, um, trucks and truck delivery services and the possibility of the types of jobs that uh, might be eliminated or new ones that might be created and you know all of it comes in, you know has its positives and negatives there and I, th I think the truck and delivery thing is an interesting one. Oh, absolutely because we have so many truck drivers in this country it's one of the biggest occupations we have i think after school teachers um and uh the the whole economy depends on deliveries by truck um so uh, uh if we uh, end up in a place in which um you know, computational technology based on AI has reached the point where we can do away with uh, human beings at the wheel. I think, yes, maybe the highways will be safer. Um, but at the same time, uh, think about not just the drivers, think about all of those towns in the middle of nowhere in the United States, that the little motel or the little restaurant, uh, they all depend on the truck drivers. So Very we're talking so. about millions and millions of jobs that could potentially disappear. Yeah, that would be a huge impact in different ways because you're, you're right. I mean, the, there's, you know, there's the, just the, the diner itself alone that uh, the truck driver is trying to keep up with their timing of getting from wherever they're going in time. They stop in at that, uh, you know, in the state of Georgia, there's like a Waffle House on every corner just about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, most times if you're there late at night, you're, you're finding a lot of truck drivers there. So. Of course, of course. Yeah. But, you know, but technology, uh, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of um, most of these developments. I mean, consider virtual reality. You see, up until like two or three years ago, I thought VR, virtual reality, was only good for video games. <laughs> but, you know, right now, the applications in healthcare are so important, like patients suffering from dementia. Well, you give them VR goggles, right? And you program them so that they feel better and they report huge improvements in their mental state nice and they live longer uh, and they can communicate uh, they become more you know gregarious and they they have more conversations and they they become more social so um, you know many of these technologies i think uh, will in the end deliver higher quality of life but we need to be on the alert as you mentioned at the beginning of this uh, part of the conversation we need to be on the alert because there are negative consequences as well and I think it's, uh, you know, and it, you know, the good and the bad. And uh, it's one of those things that usually somewhere out of the bad comes some sort of good. And it just, as we, and coming, speaking of going back to something that was said before, um, well, may have to relearn and be taught something new, some new skill. Cause the, but I, I got to say, cause 
uh, child of the sixties. I don't know if you ever watched cartoons or not. I, I watched way too many cartoons growing up, but uh, you know, one of the cartoons was the Jetsons. And uh, mm -hmm. I think everyone would categorize George Jetson as someone who got a little bit lazy because of the, the amount of technology he had. So I think he went to work and pushed yeah. a button. So yeah. my favorites were the pink Panther and box bunny. Awesome. Awesome. Very good. Yes. Two of my favorites. You gotta, gotta love those. There's nothing better. You gotta watch them and understand. So, but good stuff. The, uh, um, see, you threw me there. I got, I, I'm really in that world now. I can talk <laughs> Bugs Bunny and Pink Panther a long time. We get, um, yeah, on page 189, this observation is made. Many gig workers are simply trying to avoid becoming a cubicle dweller like those depicted in the Dilbert comic strip. Could you talk about the gig worker? You know, what is it and the impact it's having? Well, the impact has been huge because, as you know, there are certain platforms like uh, TaskRabbit that offer. Um, you know, gig workers, so many opportunities uh, for doing, you know, small things here and there, it's like small errands and get paid for them. And increasingly, we see people of all ages, actually, uh, thinking about the gig economy, in some cases, as a complement to their main line of work, but increasingly as their main line of work. So they're becoming gig workers. And obviously, communications technology, such as the one that we're using right now to take this program, you know, they essentially, uh, you know, enable uh, gig work on a global scale. Uh, they're enabling also remote work right now in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, but even before the pandemic, they were enabling uh, somebody here in the United States taking on a task for pay uh, from somebody in Singapore, let's say. Um, so that's the beauty of this interconnected world that we have. And these platforms are essentially creating a marketplace where people with skills can make money by taking on tasks that other people need to be completed. It's, it's, it's an amazing situation. I mean, cause there's so many different, if somebody can think it, there's somebody out there willing to buy it almost. It's like, <laughs> and absolutely. Look, I mean, we could have up to, I believe 20 to 25 million gig workers in this country, excluding Uber drivers. Okay. I'm excluding those. So it's just people who sit at their desks from home and one day they're working for somebody and the following day for somebody else and they're making money that way. We could have 20 to 25 million people by the year 2030 uh, essentially making their money that way. That's awesome. I mean, it's just, it's just an amazing sort of talking about changing in your thought processes because mm -hmm. you are your own boss completely. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. And you, you take can... on the tasks that you, you want to take on. Right. That's That's amazing. I mean, you know, there's, there's all these different uh, uh, places where you can find uh, groups that you can look at the different uh, wares that people offer like Fiverr and uh, Upwork and a whole bunch of other ones where people offer their wares, everything from being able to create logos to if you want somebody to, to sound like some famous actor that you're going to find somebody there. See, I told you, I know him. Yeah. I'm not sure that's really him though. <laughs> you know, and it's, and, but like I said, if there's a possibility. I mean, I, I know someone who, what she does is she helps people straighten out their lives and straighten out their physical lives. So like uh, you show her pictures of the garage and she's going to come up with a different way of, of fixing your garage so that it, it, your life isn't so cluttered and, you know, and she starts it all online. So, I mean, that's just really cool. So it's, it's the ability to tap into talent insight or solutions, no matter where they may be located in the world. That is the promise of, of this uh, gig economy. You know what, what's funny though, as a, as a funny note, because you, you reference Dilbert, which I love, mm -hmm. but 
the Dilbert world doesn't happen if there's no water cooler to gather around or uh, <laughs> cubicles to, to make fun of or, or corporate meetings to make fun of, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But don't get me wrong. I think, uh, you know, we're going now through an intense period of uh, remote working. Uh, but I think people are finding themselves increasingly lonely uh, if they only work from home. So I think we're going to go to a hybrid model in which maybe we will work at the office for two or three days a week and we will work from home the other the rest of the week. I think that's most likely uh, what's going to happen, let's say, in three years from now. That's interesting because I could see that because it, you know, it, it, it you know, you see the people who, hence working in a coffee shop, <laughs> it, and they might tell you as much as they want to that that's my environment. I really work well there because I got my coffee and whatever. And I think some of it has a lot to do with just being around people, not not being locked up in your house well, with just a cat or a dog. <laughs> we are social. Uh, but we're social in the sense of uh, we want to see other people and be able to, you know, share things with them. And there's no substitute for that. I don't think, uh, you know, any of the platforms that we have, like the one that we're using right now for communicating is good enough to replicate that kind of interaction. Yeah, that's, uh, you, you got that right. That's, uh, it's interesting because like, you know, I know one of the things that's big right now is they're experimenting with, I, I was talking about music before. Mm -hmm. And so, by the way, I do have to tell you this. I got to go back to music for just a minute. I, I love millennials because they brought vinyl LPs back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, something that everybody thought was dead. It's got, about 5% of the market. Yeah. Which is amazing. I mean, even places like Walmart and stores like Target are carrying albums again and record players. And it's like, who would have thought that was going to happen? And uh, I, I don't think there's really going to be a resurrection for eight track tapes, but you know, the cassette no. tape has made a little comeback, which is interesting, uh, yeah, but not yeah. at the level of LPs, but uh, we, yeah, go, go ahead. No, 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 please go ahead. Oh, what I was going to say was that, you know, what's, what's interesting around, you know, all of this is that when you think about, um, you know, just this world that we're in and trying to connect and, you know, a part of, part of the LP coming back, I have my own personal opinion, which I think that people started thinking, you know, I'd like to actually physically hold something <laughs> and say, I actually own this. <laughs> and they're probably kind of jealous of us going through the seventies when the LPs actually had pretty cool cover art and all kinds of stuff. Now, now it's a little stamp, postage stamp that you look at, but um, you know, it's just, it's just an interesting thing where, you know, right now, I mean, with, with music and uh, the way people create music and you can go online and, and doing shows like, like this right here, the technology to be able to even put your, your, create your own songs and such and put it out there on the internet, put it on YouTube, put it on, you know, on your own show and uh, have people listen to you is, you know, such a bigger, wider thing that that in itself is a, is a neat. Absolutely. Um, well, think about, think about it this way. Uh, we have five senses. And when we're using any of these digital communication media, we're only using two of the senses, right? That's right. Not the other three. So <laughs> taste, smell, and touch. Those, um, you know, unless we coordinate, you know, we're drinking the same thing or whatever, which we could do, I guess, right? To try to replicate uh, the setting at the office. Uh, we're only using two senses. And that is crippling, I think, for a human being. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. I think you're right. Cause we, we need to, we want to use those other senses. Yes. We always do. Pretty amazing. The, uh, you know, we're getting close to, to finishing up Mauro. And I, and one of the things you got, you get into is you start talking about a digital Republic. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about what that is. And then you got to talk about E Estonia. So, <laughs> so E Estonia, let me begin there is um, the, you know, the digital uh, brand name for Estonia, the Baltic uh, Republic. 
which is a tiny country, uh, you know. Yes. Uh, but it is uh, ahead of everyone else in the world in terms of the implementation of uh, digital government. So every, every um, exchange or transaction between a citizen in that country and the government is pretty much available online. Uh, so they can even vote uh, online, which I think is, given what's going on in this country, uh, perhaps a, a big advantage to have so that, you know, you don't have uh, issues uh, uh, or nobody can blame anybody, uh, you know, for problems with the electoral process. But more broadly, I think uh, what is interesting about, um, uh, you know, these digital republics is that you can also encourage people through digital tokens to engage in behavior that is desirable at the societal level. For example, as you know, we waste too many things, right? Here in the United States, we waste about a third of the food according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So with digital tokens, right, if every citizen had a digital token, we could introduce incentives so that instead of wasting the food or letting the food that we have in the refrigerator go bad, uh, that uh, we share it, right, with neighbors uh, or with people in need before, uh, you know, those eggs or before those uh, uh, bottles of milk, uh, you know, go bad. So there's all sorts of possibilities, right? And uh, we're experimenting, you know, in many parts of the world with uh, what uh, this kind of a digital republic could look like. Uh, but once again, I mean, there are some countries in, in the world like Estonia, and intriguingly, uh, there's a country in Africa that is also quite ahead of the curve, Ghana, uh, the Western part of Africa. So I think, uh, again, the challenge here is, can we be better citizens? Can we be better Americans, right? If um, we moved uh, to, towards a um, what I call in the book, uh, the tokenization of everything, right? So essentially we will have digital tokens for everything that would encourage us to, um, you know, take advantage of opportunities out there, but also to be better at, as consumers, better as citizens, better as investors uh, along all of the different dimensions of life. It's, it, it's just amazing thinking about uh, the different possibilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, where this could go, especially if you have wide open... Uh, wide open is not really what I want, but if you have the ability to have people um, come together to 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 kind of help each other see each other's thoughts, you know, kind of going Absolutely. back to what we talked about at the beginning, and I I think that's uh, it's it's pretty cool some of what could be achieved, especially if we can help people understand that with the bad there's going to be good, and so if we lose jobs, there's going to be new jobs that have to to come around and have to be taken care of, and absolutely. We just need to, uh, I think, be very careful, which is the mistake that I think we've made um, in the United States over the last 20 years. There's people who find themselves in their 50s and they, they find it very difficult to switch gears, right? Whenever there is a huge technological shock. Uh, so I think we need to, uh, you know, be very, very careful not to leave anybody behind, which is unfortunately what I think we have done over the last 20 years. Um, so, yes, I think technology on balance brings more benefits than costs, uh, more solutions than problems. But inevitably, Steve, you're always going to see some people who cannot adjust in real time. And it tends to be people in their late 40s, in their 50s. For them, perhaps it's a little bit too late to learn another trade, another kind of job, right? So they feel, you know, left behind. And we need, I think, to avoid that situation especially now that we're going through this intense period of technological transformation. And it's so powerful what you're talking about right there, because I, it's funny. I, I like to 
try to be funny with, with friends in my age bracket and say, come on, you're embarrassing my age bracket, man. Come on. You got to, we got to figure this out. It's, it's, it's zoom or it's, you know, it's, it's a meeting online. This is, you can figure this out. Just click the link. All right. We're good. We can make this happen. Um, they, uh, my, my favorite one to complain about is for some reason in my age bracket, they have a hard time understanding that when they're on those zoom calls or Google meets or, or, you know, any of the others to give them all fair advantage, not sponsored by any of them. <laughs> the, uh, um, they forget that, you know, all you have to do is mute your mic. Okay. So that we don't, so that we don't hear the, uh, the keys rattling or, you know, when you open the bag of chips cause you're bored with the yeah. meeting or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But let me tell you the biggest mistake that people are making these days with uh, all of these video conferencing tools is that they reveal too much about their life in the background. Right. So for example, the bed is not done or the, uh, you know, there's, there's a mess here or there. Uh, also, you know, if you have artwork on the walls, that's uh, revealing something about you. Um, so one of the things that experts on video conferencing are saying these days is that you have to be careful about what you're showing in your background, because that could reveal more about you than you want other participants in the call to learn. Right. That's, that's, it's powerful. I mean, it's, it's right on it. I, I, you know, it's funny because I think of, you know, the audience can't see because we're doing, this is an audio, but I mean, um, and you're missing out because it's a great image behind Morrow of his, of his book and uh, the Wharton School of Business. So we got, you're, you're giving me subliminal messages here. And, uh, <laughs> and then in mine, I, I see this as a set. <laughs> it's my bookshelf and uh, the stuff that I like to show people, but it's like, <laughs> so it's, but I know what you're talking about with the schools reopening now after the pandemic, one of the things that's happening is, you know, they're having these lots of virtual meetings and mm -hmm, parents mm -hmm. are realizing we can't just do this where we normally have the computer because of what's behind the, yeah, the computer. Yeah. So, uh, Absolutely. That's interesting. Well, um, you know, uh, Mara, it's been awesome talking with you. I and mean, I've got a couple questions left, but uh, you know, your book 2030 AD, I mean, it's just, it's extremely powerful. And um, if someone wanted to connect further with you or uh, purchase a book, where, where would you send them? Well, the book is available from everywhere uh, where books are sold, uh, big retailers, small retailers, uh, online uh, websites uh, that sell books and all of that. If they want to get in touch with me, and I really would encourage your listeners to do so, please, if they have questions or uh, just if they want to have a, an online chat, is they can find me on social media, on Twitter or on LinkedIn and also on Facebook. And of course, they can always email me. So like um, a member of the uh, generation born in the 1960s, I'm still using email. Nice. Uh, unlike uh, some of our younger uh, or your younger listeners. Uh, and um, uh, they, they can all find my email uh, on Google if they just enter my name and uh, it will send them to my webpage or to the Wharton School and my email will be there, my email address. Awesome. And I will have uh, links to your book as well as to uh, your email address and uh, to, to your social media on my, uh, on my show notes page. So those listening just, just need to know I'll have it all right there for you. you just go to the show notes page for this podcast and you'll be able to, uh, to link right in with Mauro and that'll, that'll be good. Um, so I got last two questions to ask you, Mauro, and, and there's questions I like to ask and uh, hear what uh, people say. So here's the first one. When things get difficult or there are too many issues all coming at once and you want to quit, how do you overcome these feelings and keep going? I think the most important thing is to understand that there's always light at the end of the tunnel, that we will get out of, uh, you know, every single difficulty, including such a, you know, crazy situation as the one that we're in now. But this is what I would tell people. Um, you cannot stop making decisions or freeze completely. That's one extreme. 
And on the other, uh, the other extreme, you cannot, um, you know, like uh, change everything in your life all at once because, hey, there's so much change, right? So in the closing pages of the book, what I argue is that what you should do is make decisions, but avoid making any type of decision that is irreversible when so many things are changing. That is a really important thing. So you can make big decisions as long as they can be reversed if the conditions change, right? Uh, but again, as human beings, we have this instinct of essentially going for the extremes. No change whatsoever. So I, you know, uh, I live in the bunker of my home in the basement or changing everything in my life. And I think those two extremes are not very good paths, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the decisions that one should be making when we are in the middle of so much change. Excellent advice. I love that. Thank you. And last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given this chance to say thank you? So uh, I don't think he is alive anymore. But uh, when I was uh, in primary school, I think it was uh, grade five, fifth grade or sixth grade. I had an arts teacher who was phenomenal. And you see, I go to museums several times a week because uh, it gives me inspiration. And uh, every single time I go to a museum, it reminds me of that art teacher because I see something that the artist in that museum, you know, was trying to do. Um, and uh, I can think about, oh, that was actually something that my teacher told me. And for me, it's really important because I think, uh, Steve, that creativity is everything. And people find creativity in different ways. You seem to find it by listening to music. I find it primarily by visiting a museum. Uh, and other people may find it in, in other ways. So I do remember very specifically that, uh, that um, teacher. And I'll tell you, we had a nickname for him. We called him Picasso. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, after the, uh, the famous uh, you know, Spanish uh, painter yes. and uh, artist. Uh, uh, and uh, that was our nickname because he was just uh, phenomenal. But again, it was that he made us be more creative. I'm as far as one can be from being an artist. I have no talent whatsoever for, for the arts, but it makes me more creative to admire, you know, the, the creative creations of other people. And I, I remember that teacher very fondly. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. I love that. Absolutely. Love that. Uh, Mauro, I, I enjoyed talking with you today. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your book, 2030 AD, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. It's powerful. You, you, know, you start reading it and you don't want to stop and it's good stuff because you start thinking about all the places where you might be complaining about your world or you might thinking about what's this going to be like tomorrow and you're going to get sucked into, into this book. And so you've, you've written a, a great captivating book, uh, powerful, thought provoking, and I appreciate it. Uh, my brain's on fire after reading, I got to tell you. Um, Mara, wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you. Thank you for your questions. This is a wonderful show. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.